Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top-shelf equipment and designers for broadcast, concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know that this is your most important event. It is their goal to make you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome again to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN at LD at Large, the back page that I hope you guys are all reading and enjoying. I am still at home sitting in my pajamas, reaching out to all my best friends in the industry. Today, I thought it would be really nice to talk to Stephen Douglas, the lighting production designer for such huge bands as The Killers and Hosier and uh, many more that are on your playlist at the moment. Thanks so much for taking time to speak with me, Stephen. No problem. How's it going? Good. Real good. We are at home. I have completely knocked off my to-do list for a while. I even put my (laughs) suitcase back in my closet, which I had to clean out all the shoes and everything. And my, my suitcase didn't really know what to do in the closet (laughs) we got all the way down to the we learned about tarnish and the difference between tarnish and rust with my kids the other night okay we we polished (laughs) my grandfather's silver which hasn't been polished in years and so we learned the difference between physical changes and chemical changes and we're we're doing whatever we can to (laughs) keep my kids brains from turning to mush yeah, yeah, bad. That's going to be the challenge over the next few months, isn't it? Yep. As soon as I get up from my computer, I go and we we built a fort the other night. We we do everything we can to avoid screen time. Uh, the only time yep. they get screen time is when I'm, when Daddy's doing a podcast, so that they be they can sit go. quietly for a few <laughs> few minutes. And they're like, "Hey, Dad, don't you need to do another podcast?" Yeah. Yeah, so that's what's that's what's going on over at our place. What, what are you? What's your situation? Um, yeah, not too bad. I was um, I'm at home in Dublin. I was in Salt Lake City last week. Um, came into contact with a potential confirmed case of Corona, so I'm actually in. Uh, I'm actually isolating myself from my family at the moment. I'm six days into that, and I'm just waiting for. Uh, waiting for a test for COVID. You are in a hotel room just blocks away from your family in Dublin? Yeah, about 10 minutes from my house. So not only are you isolated from the world, you're isolated from your family. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, haven't seen the, my wife or my kids for nearly two weeks now. I would imagine the the food delivery guys are your only friends right now. Your only physical, <laughs> yeah, that's your only pretty visual much contact. Yeah, I, I I go out for drives. I uh, go places like that. Go for long drives. I went to the beach yesterday out in South Dublin, out in Bray, where it's um, it's pretty isolated and there wasn't there wasn't any really any people around. Go for a walk and yeah, see a lot of people out my window. That's about it. Listening to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> It must be like a ghost town out there. You just driving around doing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's still people getting on with their day to day work. I mean, stores are still open. Um, obviously, all of our bars and and venues, cinemas, sporting events, everything's closed. Everything's cancelled. Um, but we haven't gone into a full lockdown yet, so people aren't housebound. They're just practicing good social distancing and trying not to leave the house as much as possible. So, Wow. Uh, have you gone to a supermarket or anything? Yeah, I've been going kind of late at night. Um, 
because some of our stores are still open until about 10 p.m., the, the supermarkets. Um, so I've been going to those ones kind of late at night. And it, it's been interesting. I mean, people are pretty respectful of everyone else's space at the moment, which is good. Um, I know when when they announced recently that the schools were all closing uh, a couple of weeks ago, they uh, the supermarket thing just got crazy for a day. People were panic buying, for some reason, buying toilet roll which I think has just become a universal nonsense point all over the world. People are stockpiling toilet roll for some reason. Um, I feel like that's just an older... I think it's uh, just a, a base thing that people just resort to, isn't it? It's like yeah. packaged foods packaged foods and toilet roll. Apocalypse planning. Um, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just base programming. People just go, oh, I'm gonna, definitely going to need these. It sounds like it's which, left over from the Cold War. They're like, hey, well, this is just <laughs> what we do. So, Yeah, yeah. No, it is. I think it is just a base urge, a primal urge that people just go, well, I'm always going to need these and they're not going to expire, so I'm going to buy all of them. But it's settled down. It's calmed down now. People are, you know, the, people are seeing that the supply chain is still open. Goods are still coming in. You know, shelves are still getting restacked every day. So. Yeah. Um, it's chilled out a little bit now and people are pretty good about the, you know, the one meter, two meter distancing thing when you're waiting in line. Um, so yeah, it's not been, it's not been too crazy. It's definitely very weird though. I wonder if when the rebound happens, if the, if the one meter, two meter thing will still be in place for when we come back, I wonder if we'll have concerts. When we start concerts, okay, well, okay, mm. we'll we'll allow a third as many people as capacity, but everybody has to stay six feet from each other. Well, that's the 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 capacity on an arena floor is already kind of planned that way, isn't it? It's it's X amount of space per person, which is why you always have that big empty section at the back. So I think it'll be I think it'll just be that. I think people will just push up. I don't think we need to restrict capacities any further. Um, but again, we'll be led by by people who are actual experts in this rather than us who don't really know anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine that. Uh, I'm really glad there's people that are much smarter than me because I would do that. I would just give everybody like a hula hoop at the hold. <laughs> and like, okay, you guys, can, you guys can all go back to your shows now. But hold this like, all the uh, time and don't. Here's a I mask that, and here's a hula hoop. I think there might be a market for, you know, those um, walkers, those circular walkers that you give your kids when they're learning how to walk when they're, when they're yes. tiny. Yes. Like adult, adult sized versions of them. But then we would just be turning the world into a giant bumper car experiment, <laughs> which would be great. Or, you know, those, um, you know, those like big hamster balls that you play, like you can play soccer, football in that you run at each other and knock each other down. The Zorbs. I think those are Zorbs. Yeah. We should get them or else like the, the big ball that, that Wayne from the Flaming Lips has. Yes. The boy, the boy in the bubble thing. We could all get them and just charge around bouncing off each other all day. That would be just great fun. You and I have a, <laughs> I think, I, I changed Copyright. my mind. I think you and I should be in charge. We could totally <laughs> bring the industry back in in a day or two if we could just match those. Imagine, could you imagine like 100,000 people at an EDM show in those bouncy ball things just pounding off each other? I can't imagine anything else so right now. So much fun. <laughs> That's copyright, Douglas Lowe's. <laughs> uh, if you get a chance to talk to Brandon, let him know that uh, that we came up with that idea first. <laughs> Fair enough. I think I think the prodigy might have something to say with that. I remember Keith having one like twenty years ago out on the crowd, even before the Flaming Lips did it. <laughs> That would be a nice uh, thing to add to your your shelf right next to your Knights of Illumination sword. You like also also have a patent for the the Zorb concert idea. You could use the, the sword to to puncture them. Yeah, you, you, you'll have to leave your sword at home for sure. <laughs> it definitely doesn't travel anywhere with me. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, how does that happen with with the? With the killers, you uh, I know you do a lot of, you're very interactive with them and you engage a lot. Do you come up with these crazy ideas? And you're like, hey, you guys, let's try this. And sometimes they're like, well, yeah, let's let's try that. Or do they, are yeah. they receptive? 
yeah, crazy yeah, designer they're, they're, ideas? Yeah, they're pretty receptive. Um, obviously, I've been with them a long time. So, uh, yeah, they're pretty receptive. And, and there's, there's lots and lots of crazy ideas that we talk about and try and, and don't go through with as well for one multitude of reasons, you know. Um, but no, they're they're very receptive. Brandon in particular, you know. Um, Ronnie's big into the design aspect as well now. Um, what so, are some yeah, of the no, bigger ideas that they've come to you with? Um, they they kind of tend, they don't really come with big ideas. They come with kind of suggestions and feelings and, you know, oh, I kind of see something like this. What can we do in that kind of field? Um, you know, Brandon will have very definite ideas about his keyboard stand, which is something that we do every tour we've changed um he has a different kind of keyboard stand suiting each each album uh and that goes right back to i believe the origin of that was they were opening for bowie or they were opening for morrissey i think it was in la and apparently somebody told them that david bowie was coming to the show um so brandon ran out to uh like a uh I can never remember the name. It's like a a craft store in in the US. I can never remember the name. A pretty famous one. Michael's. And he bought. Uh, it might have been Michael's. Yeah, okay. he went out and bought. He bought like a load of um, sparkly jewels and a hot glue gun, and glued them all onto his keyboard stand, so that they could uh, that that it would look kind of funky if Bowie was coming to see them. Um, he's never actually told me that, but I I I've read it in it read it somewhere enemy or something like that apparently huh. um so yeah it kind of started from there so we've had we had a couple of those on the first record and then um we had i think we had two different keyboard stands on the second album cycle and then we we progressed to the decay on the third album which has become the kind of ubiquitous one now that we go back to every time um if we're because we tour a lot in between record cycles as well um we'll do random little festival runs and stuff like that so if we're doing something that doesn't isn't tied to a particular album cycle we'll always bust out the k because it's it's universal it's going to always work for them um and we had a lightning bolt one for battleborn tour in 2012 and then we had the man symbol for the last album cycle um, and then I had some female symbols made for the backing singers mic stands as well, just to just to even things up. <laughs> uh, and then, Can you talk and then about we'll, the upcoming cycle. I, yeah, I yeah, we're we're talking about it now. We're talking about it at the moment. So we've been listening to some of the new stuff that's that's uh, not quite finished yet, and some of it that is. Uh, they put a new single out last week, obviously. Um, quite ironically, titled "Caution." It came out on the first day of the kind of <laughs> madness of the pandemic. How fitting. <laughs> so, and that wasn't planned. That was, I believe that was the planned release date for a long time. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite funny. <laughs> Is that the one that has Lindsay Buckingham on guitar? Yeah. You know, I didn't even know that until I read it online somewhere. <laughs> I read a review of the single. I think it was on, might have been on MMA or Rolling Stone. And he said, oh, and Lindsay booking and playing the guitar solo. I was like, oh, okay. Well, there you go. That makes sense. Um, uh, I would love to see a yeah. killer's Lindsay Buckingham live. That would be amazing. That would be interesting. Yeah. I wonder if, because when we go out in the US later this year, I know we have Johnny Meyer opening verse. Um, so I wonder if he would, uh, I wonder if he'll get up and bust out that solo. <laughs> oh, I would love. To I pro- I'd probably, I'd probably just start a massive rumor now that I'm, I'm going to get blamed on. This does not <laughs> <laughs> disclaimer. This does not come from any conversation I've had with anyone. <laughs> These are just wishful thinkings of two. I'm pretty you know, sure human beings who are just happy to be talking to each other. I'm pretty sure Ted, who uh, plays guitar, could uh, could nail that solo anyway. So I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> So you, there's still a tour on the, on the schedule. It's still there at the moment. Okay. We're still we're still working towards it. Um, we're supposed to start uh, with a stadium run in the UK in late May, okay. uh, which then which then leads into festivals for the summer and then into the US in August through October, 
and then uh, Mexico and Australia before Christmas. I believe the plan is we're still working. We're still having meetings. We're still talking to scenic people and video people. And we're going to push ahead with it until we're told not to. Um, who makes that decision? I don't know. It'll be far above my pay grade. But until uh, until we're told it's not happening, we're going to keep going just in case it does. You know. I think that's the best we can do is just keep pushing forward until we're told not to. That's it. I mean, we could stop now and and by the end of me you know, the end of may is two months away so it's it, it could be better it could be a whole lot worse of course as well we don't know um none of us know so yeah push forward until told otherwise unfortunately right on one of the reasons i wanted to reach out to you is because i recently wrote an article for plsn with nick whitehouse about the eight paths to becoming a lighting designer okay and, uh, oh yeah i saw the link yeah, yeah. So the the eighth path was what I called the unicorn situation where a band comes through a small pub and they they see a spark they see the the potential of a of the house LD or whoever's uh, running their lights at the time and they they make contacts and they say hey you're good we're good we would be better together and then the magic just happens and then that band stays with that designer forever and I had a few people reach out. They're like, I don't know anybody like that. And we would love to hear yeah. a story from that person. And so you and uh, Howard Ungerlier are, are two of the, maybe the, the five people that I know that have, that's ever happened to. Can you tell us how that, how that came to be? Um, yeah. Unicorn story. Wow. I haven't heard, I haven't heard it described like that before. <laughs> I just, I don't. Um, like I, I know I've seen television shows and movies where that happens, but I don't yeah. know of anybody. I, that's the last way I would tell somebody how to get into our industry, but it does happen. It is. It is definitely the last way I would tell anyone either. Um, it, yeah, I suppose it is unlikely, but it does happen occasionally. Um, so what happened with me was I. In mid nineties, mid late nineties, I started working in the Olympia Theater in Dublin, um, which is you know the the primary kind of you know mid sized venue in Dublin at that point. Um, so we got a lot of shows coming through there. I mean, in an average week, you could have. I remember one particular one particular week always springs to mind. We had the Bolshoi Ballet. We had. Um, a couple of comedy shows. We had like the Foo Fighters and something like Bear in the Big Blue House or something, one of those kids shows. So that all happened in the space of one week. So it was a venue with massive turnaround of different types of shows. It was about 1,200 capacity, three-level classical kind of theater. Um, and I worked there for years and it was a great, it was a great place to learn because of all the different types of shows. We would have our own production, you know, we had an in-house rig. We would have people coming in with full production. We would do massive theater hiring for stuff like the Bolshoi and, and the, the theater festival, which would happen every October. Um, so, yeah, it was a great place to learn. And I learned from a couple of really good people in there, uh, the chief electrician, Terry, and his assistant, Kate, who went on to become chief after he left. Um, so I was there for probably about seven years. and. I had kind of moved on to running another venue in town as well as that one kind of. And I was also doing some touring, you know, really low level, smaller band touring um, in, you know, a van and a van and uh, a splitter van around the UK with bands and stuff like that. Um, and I was home for a while. The person who had replaced me wanted a bit of time off. They were really stuck and they called me and they're like, oh, can you come in and do do this show next week? I've never heard of them. Some band called The Killers. They have no LD. Um, just come in and busk it and away you go. So uh, the band were the band were about it was about four months after the first record came out. Excuse me. So um they, I had actually seen them once before I'd done the Oxygen Festival that summer. And I was looking after the new band stage for the local lighting company, Just Like. 
and they headlined the Saturday night, but I had completely forgotten who they were until they came into the Olympia that day. And about halfway through the show, they played a song. I was like, oh, I'm, I, oh yeah, oh yeah, you were those guys. Okay, cool. And I remembered, oh, I had lit them already during the summer, ironically. Um, but it was, uh, the song was Mr. Brightside. And the reason I recognized it was it was actually on a uh, advertisement commercial here for a local sports store. Uh, so it was in heavy rotation on the TV. You would hear the chorus in, in the ad breaks of a lot of TV shows. Um, so, yeah, they came in. They did that Olympia show. It went well. The usual thing people say, you know, oh, give us your number. That was great. We'll call you. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky to have that happen a few times. Nothing ever came of it. Um, one, a couple of the other bands, I won't, I won't actually won't mention the band's names. Um, one of them, uh, the lead singer did an injury to himself, which put him out of touring for a year. And that was uh, the day before, two days before I was supposed to possibly go over and meet with them. So that put that to do it. That one put that one to bed, and then another one they just went another direction, and I never heard from them again. Um, but then with the Killers, they went on. They did a UK tour after that, and I started getting emails and calls going, "Hey, are you available?" They were headlining the NME tour, so this would have been November of two thousand four, and then they would have headlined the NME tour, which is like a multi-package band thing. Uh, in the January, they said, oh, can you come do that? So I went on, did that, and uh, we did about three weeks, and we were a few days from the end of the tour, and they said, oh, well, we have our own headline show in London a week after the tour ends. Can you do that show? And I said, yeah, no problem. So we did. We actually did two shows in Brixton in the same day. So we did a matinee and an evening show. Um but then in the week in between, they had a show in Paris. So I did that. And then they said, oh, do you want to just stay on the bus and come to Germany with us? And next thing I know, it was three weeks later and we were somewhere in Spain. Um, uh, at which point then they said, okay, well, do you want to come to America and stay on for the rest of the album cycle? So that took me through to October 2005. And uh, yeah, we've been been there ever since. Wow. And then I would imagine as their show as their uh, fame rose, your skill set had to had to come up as well. Yeah, you can't, it, it, you can't be doing a sprinter van anymore. No, definitely not. I mean, I've done some big shows before that as well. I've been lucky. There was, um, I did a couple of arena shows that I designed uh, for local acts, uh, but nothing on the kind of massive touring scale. Um, so I'd done the Point Depot in Dublin, which is now the Three Arena. Uh, so there's about eight or 9,000 capacity. So I'd done that a few times. So I was lucky in that I did have a little bit of experience uh, doing bigger shows. But yeah, the Killers thing went, it went massive really quickly. We went from doing small clubs to doing, I mean, in six within six months, we were head, second on the bill at Glastonbury on the main stage to the White wow. Stripes. And that was the ultimate throw and go show. I mean, we we got delayed going down there. There's um, all sorts of crazy stories of that day, but we got delayed getting there. We, we only got on site like two hours, two or three hours before we played. So I rolled out no floor package, just a backdrop, used the house console, used the house busk page. And we just went for it. Um, but that's how we were at the time. It was okay, let's do this. You know, we turn up, see what the situation is and, and off we go. Wow, that is a, a meteoric rise there. That's uh, stepping it was, it was, by fire. Yes, definitely. And and even when we were touring in the US, we because some of the venues got upgraded and some didn't. We were we were touring production, but we were everything in one truck, so we had quite a small rig. Um, one night we could be doing a, a small club in Rhode Island, and the next night we were doing. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I don't know what it's called. The sponsor is nowadays, but the, the shed just outside of Toronto, 25,000 people or whatever it is. I believe that's the Budweiser now. It's Budweiser now. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we were doing that kind of differing level of venue within the same couple of days. Um, so yeah, it was, 
it was definitely a massive learning experience. And then going into festivals was, was the biggest learning experience for me, really. Um, being able to be quick, you know, because like I said, we were, we were high up the bill, but we weren't headlining and, you know, we didn't really carry a lot of clout with us. So getting time to do anything was, uh, but I, I think, I think the things that I'd done previously, like in the Olympia kind of led, lent to that because they had a thing at the Olympia called midnight at the Olympia where it was basically cover bands. So they would have the regular show. It would finish at 10 30. We'd close, you know, close the theater, load out that show. And then the doors would open again at 11 15 for the midnight show. And that was just people wanted to have a club night and drink and they didn't really care about the level of production you were putting on or anything like that. But you, you had 20 minutes to program your show before they would close the curtains and open the doors again. And some nights you would have nothing because you could have a low, you could have a full production tour in and they would have stripped out your entire house rig and you'd have 10 minutes to put a couple of park hands on stands and, and go with that. And then other nights we would have, we would have a full production in for a whole weekend. Um, and they would be generous enough to let you use their full system which is actually how I met Nick Whitehouse the first time he was in with a band, uh, English band called a Welsh band, sorry, excuse me, correct myself, a Welsh band named Feeder. And they were in for the whole weekend and we had an ACDC tribute band on the Saturday night in between their two shows. And Nick let me use their entire touring production, which was about 80 moving lights. Um, but again, I had 20 minutes to program it between the show ending and the doors reopening. So I think that kind of served me well for festivals. How generous. Yeah. Yeah. And that was good. I mean, Nick, I think Nick just wanted to stay. Nick and all the boys just stayed and drank in the bar and hung out at the desk. And we had a good, a good time watching this ACDC tribute thing. <laughs> they were all sitting here letting they're like, Hey, you get to enjoy the rig while we go drink. So here you yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I know that's uh, been turned out to be a very successful relationship as well. I know you and Nick yeah, have worked together yeah, many me and times Nick, since then. We we certainly have, yeah. We've we've worked together a lot of times so and we've become good friends over the years. Um but also the the co designer on that show the first time I met Nick was Brian Leach, who um obviously is um was a big part of Nick the start of Nick's career and also a huge part of the start of my career. So that was a great intro into meeting Nick was already knowing Brian from a show I'd done in Rome years previously. So it, it typical of the way our industry works, you meet people and make an impression and then you, you know, you meet other people through them. So it's, no, it's good. So how does that work when you are a designer yourself and then Nick Whitehouse sees your skills and he says, Hey, you should come work for me but not as a designer, you should, I want some of your input, but I also want you to be my director. Uh, how does the workflow happen there? We've done it multiple ways. Uh, we've done shows where I've gone in purely as lighting director um, because he knows that he's not going to tour with the show and he wants somebody he can trust to, to look after it. I've also gone in as co-designer on stuff with him where, he with fireplay he has his head kind of tied up in a lot of other aspects of the same show you know whether it be the set design or the effects stuff or you know whatever um so i've gone in as co-designer i'll do a lot of the drawings with him and with brian vaughn at fireplay as well he does all their cad and he's their kind of head of lighting um so yeah it, it depending on the project dictates the way the way we work but I think Nick also knows that our styles complement each other as well and that we have similar kind of aesthetic tastes. He knows that I'm not going to go and stray too far from what he might do in a similar situation. Obviously, it's not going to look like what he would do and what he does doesn't do what doesn't look like what I do. But uh, yeah, we have similar tastes, I think, and similar understanding of music as well, I think. It sounds like as long as everybody understands the particular hierarchy of that project, you can, yeah. decisions can be made. Like, well, I I want red and I want magenta, but in this case, on at this time, red is the best decision, so we're all going with red. Yeah, 
yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a collaborative thing. We we've, we've we've done projects where we would be. I remember one we were programming all you know as everyone does, programming long couple of weeks overnights every night. And I remember one we looked at it and we just couldn't get this song couldn't get this song right. And it was just tiredness. And it's just good to have that other person who just turns around and goes, you know what, we're not getting this tonight. Let's let's go to bed. Come back. And we did. We went off to the hotels. We went to bed. We came back in the morning, and I think we did the song in an hour. You know, that is the the hidden secret to collaboration, right there. Is the being able to put your ego aside and you're like, you're right. This, I even though I put three hours of work into this, it's crap because it's yeah. two in the morning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you no, need a respectful outside voice to say that. You can't. We're, we're really bad at telling that to ourselves. Like, no, I. I oh, gotcha. I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst for it. If 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 people, I'm I'm really bad at, at hurrying up if I know people are waiting for me. I will happily sit there all night and program till seven in the morning on my own. But if I think there's some guy sitting on dimmers who needs to go and get some sleep, I will just hurry up and go. Uh, I'll do. I'll fix it tomorrow. You know. But uh, any crew that have worked with me over the years know if I send them. If I send them away to the hotel, I'm doing it for my own headspace and my own benefit, you know. Uh, but if I've got somebody sitting beside me at the console, then they're they're in it for the long haul as well. They're with me, so you know. So many hours of long, long programming sessions. I would imagine that. Oh yeah. When you're allowed yeah. to take the time, you'll take it. Absolutely, you have to. <laughs> Uh, what about things like, uh, I believe Alicia Keys was one of those projects where he was the designer mm. and you were the, was that a co-designer or were you director on that one? Uh, he was a designer. I was director. Yeah. Okay. Uh, were there any certain moments where you're just like, we are not going to get this song tonight. We need to take a break. No. We need to go and get a refresh. I think there was one song on that. Yeah. I think we were. It was one song we we might have been overcomplicating it, and yeah, that happened. Yeah, I think there was. I think it might have been that tour. There might have been one song we were overcomplicating, and and we came back the next day and went, you know what? This just needs to be, just needs to be this, and just needs to sit and let the music, you know, let the music do its thing, and then and then we'll we'll sneak back in a little later on rather than going. All right, well, here's a hundred cues before the chorus. and then when you switch switch gears completely and then go work with like say sooner Mm. do you have to completely change your workflow or do you just do you just remain to be you or do you have to chameleon yourself to change to accommodate her workflow um no i mean i funnily the stuff i've done for sooner um uh has been stuff where she hasn't actually been able to make it herself Okay. So uh, we did. I did a, a summer of Motley Crue years ago, and then I did two years at Rage Against the Machine. Um, and they were things that we knew sooner wasn't going to be able to make it to. So she would do some drawings, send out the drawings, and then I would, I would go there and start programming. And I had, I had just, you know, full license to do, to do whatever I thought was right to do under the, uh, under the kind of constraints of the show itself. So, you know, like Rage Against the Machine, there was not a lot of color in it. Uh, big, impactful looks, but that was basically the only kind of guidelines I was given. It was, off you go, you do it. So in that sort of situation, it's completely based on your reputation as being a a good programmer, director, because they're basically putting the whole thing in your hands. Um, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I think it's also... It, it grows out of trust as well, you know, and, and recommendation, you know, sooner had been, we'd met a few times and we knew each other pretty well and we got on, you know, we knew we got on well and yeah. And then obviously I'd been referred to her by a few, by a couple of people as well. So she was happy to go with that. Right on. And do you think a lot of that reputation comes from your, your, uh, your experiences with the killers and, uh, just the, the reputation precedes you 
because that they they know that the killers are a, a large scale band and they know that you're attached. Do you share the reputation in that regard? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> don't know about that. That's a tough um, one to answer. Yeah, you're gonna sound like a complete uh, complete tool if I say yes, aren't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, I definitely don't. I don't think I get any kudos because the the, the band are who they are. Okay. Um, I hope. My only hope is that people look at it and go, "Okay, well, if they don't know me, and you know, obviously, there's a lot of people out there who don't know me." Um, I would hope that if people look at it and go, oh, "I don't know him," but okay, well, he's been with this same band for 15 years, so he's either doing something right or he's still getting away with it. So. <laughs> 15 years is a long time to to uh, I always I always refer anything. to it. I always refer to it as still getting away with it. <laughs> oh that's very humble of you. Uh I would I would I would imagine there are a lot of people out there that are uh, completely enamored by your uh your CV and your resume like wow that that guy is either Yeah, I've I've been I've been very lucky. I've worked with a lot of really good people. Um, and that's you know it's that's put me into position to end up in in a lot of uh, good front of houses. <laughs> How did that parlay itself into you helping out on Aerosmith? Um, yeah, again, it was one of those things where with Fireplay doing the overall production and and they did special effects they were coordinating the video with uh, a lot of the art the video artists and we were then all working directly under the creative director amy um nick just knew that he needed somebody to come in and work alongside him um because he was going to be so busy with the the other aspects of, of putting together a big vegas residency like that so what a um, huge collaboration that would be. So there was out at front house, there would have been Amy, Nick. Yeah. So it was a- Amy Tinkham, uh, our creative director. There was Nick, there was Kelly, Kelly Stixel. There was myself. There was Olivia Sebesky and the guys from, um, oh God, the company slips my mind now, but there were the guys who did all the video content for game of Thrones, all the special effects stuff. They worked on this with us as well. Um, and Cosmo, and, and then of course the great Cosmo. Yes. What uh, I, I can only imagine how many people have input and how many how many very experienced spoons there are in that stew, and everybody has to decide who's who's stirring when and who's stirring what and who which ingredients are going where. Yeah, no, it was good. It worked really well. Um, there was obviously a lot of there was a, a lot of things that had to be worked around on that show, especially the audio, because they had the, the immersive Lisa system with nine hangs of PA. And um, so we had to be very careful about trust positions and making sure that we weren't blocking uh, speakers because the way they were doing the, it was the, I believe it's the first THX certified live show. I'm not sure if that's correct, but I believe that is the case. Um, so there was a lot of special audio things they were doing where certain instruments were only coming out of certain speakers. And so we had to, uh, we had to be very careful with all, all of our drawings and stuff like that. Um, but once we got on site, it was great. I mean, uh, I'd met Cosmo before, but we'd never worked together on anything. Um, but it was, no, it was great having him. I mean, what a, what a resource to have on what, the band like and don't like and you know he's been there for so long as well um because we we were purely brought in by the producers of the vegas show just to do the vegas show so we weren't uh we weren't coming in to to take over aerosmith so we were you know we were very uh very positive of the fact that we had cosmo on board with us as well to you know because nobody else is going to be able to run that show the way he does it Right, that must have been uh, very tricky as to Cosmo having his input, like, hey, this is what we've always done, whereas Nick's been brought in to take them to a new place without making them feel uncomfortable. 
about abandoning anything that they used to do. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's how it worked well. Um, you know, we were able to come in and go, hey, look, this is what we were thinking here. How do you think the guys are like that? And Cosmo would go, well, we would usually do this. So we go, okay, well, let's find a good meeting point between the two things that, you know, that everybody's happy. We A band who've, who've toured for that long are probably not going to want to rip up the whole world and start again. So it was definitely a case of trying to make sure that they were comfortable and they, and they, they have to retain their, their spirit, you know, as, as Aerosmith, you know, we're not going to, we, we didn't want to turn them into a pop act. Um, so you know, even from when we did the initial fixture selection, it was definitely about retaining the look, um, but just in a slightly new, in a slightly new different way. And I think Cosmo has got enough experience under his own belt. And also, uh, with ACDC working with Patrick that he's had enough experience in the collaborative sense as well, so that we, he was able to uh, accept us coming in and being part of the team as well. So that no, was great. It was really good. I run into that a lot with the, some of my more well-established bands. They they know they need something new, but they also know that what they've been doing for for years is still tried and true and works. Yeah. So you basically you have to give them something new without changing anything. And at the same time, it's fresh. Yeah, it's a I very think that's a fine line that you have to walk there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have things with the killers that even that we do every tour that I almost kind of liken it to like Iron Maiden or ACDC. You know, if ACDC didn't bring out the bell or didn't inflate Rosie, the fans would be, they'd be pissed. Exactly. You know, that's what that's what they're going to see. So it's all about retaining those elements and then bringing something new to the table as well. So, like with the Killers, if we didn't do a new keyboard stand or if we didn't do the confetti hit or the big pyro hit on that guitar solo that people are expecting, you know. Yes, are, it is. You know, those are the fundamentals are, there that you have to yeah. get. Yeah, the, yeah, and it's just a, a way of finding a new way to do those things that keeps it fresh. Um, I imagine it's got to be taxing on you to come up with a new design for Mr. Brightside after 15 years. Like, well, <laughs> what direction can we take Mr. Brightside now? Well, what was great was a few years ago, the band actually got into, uh, they got into this thing of opening with Mr. Brightside and we would do it with the house lights on. <laughs> That's a new direction. So they would just walk on mid mid random track in the in the pre-show playlist and start playing Mr. Brightside with all the hockey arena lights on. <laughs> and they would play the whole song because yeah, they just wanted a different way to do it. Um and we we didn't have too many house light disasters. We had we had one that definitely comes to mind, but we didn't have too many. So it was good. I would imagine it's just nature for anybody who's sitting at the at the house lights button to, as soon as the band starts. Uh, um, no, not, not, yeah, not so that that would have been okay. Uh, we had the opposite problem, unfortunately. We had one show where the house lights didn't go off, and they so we had uh, they would finish Mr. Brideside, and then Ronnie would count in the next song. And on the downbeat of the song, all the house lights go, I call house lights out on the intercom, and stage lights come in, everything on the same beat. And at one particular venue, the uh, fancy touchscreen system that they installed for the house lights crashed and house lights stayed on for two and a half songs. <laughs> that is. Yeah. Wasn't good. <laughs> Thanks technology. It could have yeah, just they, been a breaker somewhere, but no, yeah, it had exactly. to be a, no. a digital. They're, they're the shows where you're, you're wishing you didn't have a riser in the middle of the audience. <laughs> yeah. On, so, uh, on Pearl Jam, we used to do that. We used to do the last song in yeah, oh yeah, yeah. house lights, and it was so difficult to to converse that to the the house guy. Like, no, turn on all the house lights. You mean you mean yeah. like just the the aisle lights? Like, no, turn on all Everybody. the work lights now. All all, yeah. but the band's still playing. Yes, yes, yes. I know. We talked yeah. about this before the show. And we found out the best term was just full hockey. And they everybody seemed to understand yeah. full hockey. 
Yeah, we, we we progressed into that as well. On the next tour, we started doing it as the last song. And what they would actually do is they, um, the Thin White Duke, Jacques Lacan thing, uh, they did a remix of Mr. Brightside, like a kind of techno remix. So they would start the techno remix with all the lasers and everything on. And then halfway through the, halfway through the, I guess the start of the second verse, they would stop and go into the guitar riff and at that point, we would bring on the full hockey lights as well. Um, but yeah, we had the same we had the same problem. People just go, "What? I I, I don't understand what you mean." It's like just turn everything on. <laughs> and then it got weird when we went to festivals because I would just white out the crowd with every single moving light. And <laughs> yeah, I've had but, uh, I've had bands that they want that the whole time, and that's mm. that's tough. But you gotta yeah, you gotta give hard. them what they want well that's it you know you you got to be able to park your own ego at times as well and realize that these people are paying your bills and and they have their own vision as well uh for what they want it to look like um the only time that gets difficult is when you've got contrasting opinions coming off the stage as well though <laughs> yeah yeah, some or, people or, want it dark. Some people want it. Some people want to see the audience. Yeah. Some people don't want to see the audience. Some people like gobos. Yeah. Some people don't. You got to kind of work. Or, or if uh, you've got if you've got an artist who wants it to be dark on his face, but a manager who's standing beside your front of house telling you to turn it on, then it starts getting the the politics start getting tricky there. But you know, I think we've all I think we've all become pretty good at dealing with that sort of uh, hand grenade getting lobbed at us. <laughs> That's why I never went full designer. I uh, I try right. and stay out of that as much as possible. I love directing and designing yeah. a handful of things, but the the politics that you guys have to do is so far removed from lighting. It's it's full business politics at that point. It can be sometimes. Um, I don't think it's as bad as as. Yeah, I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. But yeah, it's uh it can it can be tricky sometimes, but you know you you learn how to do it and deal with it. It's definitely not my favorite thing in the world um, but you know I guess it's just become part part and parcel of the business now, isn't it? Where I thrive the most is when I've just been given uh, a set list with some color selections and a tempo. oh yeah, absolutely go and go from there that those are my favorite those are yeah. For sure, becoming that's more more available. I'm I'm running into that more and more often, where people just they know that these are the colors that work. This is the vibe we're going for, and uh, and I need the audience lit for this song and not for this song. And I want red here. Yep. And I can I can whip those together pretty quick. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's what we're there to do. You know, that's isn't it? That's what we like doing. You know, and that's why I still enjoy running my own shows and um. Because I I like this this is what I got into the business for. I enjoy pushing buttons and I enjoy lighting songs and you know I do begrudgingly still sometimes still enjoy the travel a little bit. Um, but um, less and less now as I'm getting older. But uh, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's still you know it's it's a fun and it's it's an unusual industry to be in. I still think a lot of people outside it don't understand what it is we actually do. Yeah, you're you're taking our time in a hotel room to to new new levels here. We're all accustomed <laughs> to spending a few hours in a hotel room, but you six days and yeah. watched a lot of amount of time. I've watched a lot of it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, it's a great show. I you know I never watched it until recently. But this is a great time to um, catch up. Yeah, I I'd, I'd heard. Uh, obviously I'd seen Charlie day on a few, he's been in a few movies and stuff like that. Um, but I heard him on a podcast recently and he was talking about some things that they did on that show. And I was like, I definitely should really watch that. So I'm just on season 11 now. <laughs> so I've, I've got, I've got four seasons to go until I catch up, but I've still never watched any of game of Thrones. So, I'm I'm with you there. I'm still one of those people that I've I've watched two episodes and I lost interest and I never I've never seen a I've never seen a frame of it. That's amazing. You um, are you're you're a unicorn in so many ways. 
but and, and to be honest, that's that's not a uh, that's not a hipster thing. Going me, you know, me going oh, I'm not so both Game of Thrones. I'm not at all. I've just never had the chance. Um, we did a show in Belfast a few years ago, and my my daughter was only three weeks old at the time, and uh, my wife came to the show, and they were hanging out backstage, and I came back after the show, and there was all these people around the uh, around the book around the pram, just kind of looking in on my daughter, and I said, "How are all these people?" And I was talking to one of the, the girls, and she was like, "Oh yeah, uh, you know." I said, "Oh, I have to get up early in the morning. I'm I'm flying to uh, to Canada for actually. I was going to Nick Whitehouse's wedding the next day in Montreal, <laughs> so I'm flying to Montreal for Nick's wedding." And she said, "Oh yeah, I have to be up early too. We're on set really early in the morning." I was like, "Cool, good for you." And then we went off, got in the car, and I asked my wife, "I was like, who who were all those people?" And she's like, "Oh, it was the casting Game of Thrones." So, like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough literally didn't know who any of them were until a few years later i went to see that solo the star wars movie yeah and i was like oh that girl that was the girl i was speaking to in belfast oh cool yeah amelia clark <laughs> that's amazing ah. you, you just wouldn't even notice them when they're not in there especially if you haven't watched a single episode yeah, of their, i hadn't seen any i mean i shouldn't have known world changing I, I, show I did see Peter Dinklage at the bar in Belfast the night before in the hotel, so I should have known. He's um, fairly recognizable. Yeah, well, I'd seen obviously, you know, I, I knew who he was from other movies he's been in over the years, but um, yeah, I'd seen him in the bar, but I, I didn't put two and two together that he was even in Game of Thrones, so <laughs> Ob- oblivious. Well, thank you so much for your time. Stephen Douglas, this has been no a problem. pleasure. I'm really happy to be able to take this opportunity to reach out to all my friends, and I'm so thankful that you have time to hang out and spend I, with me. I got nothing but time at the moment. <laughs> so little to do, and so much time to do it in these days. Yeah. Right. Thank That's you it. for your time. No worries. All the best. <laughs>